0: Hey, this is Robin. that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, a bonus episode not about music. We are talking about the 10 best horror movies of all time. Micaiah, we are huge audiophiles, but our original... Uh, connection point. One of the first things we uh, got along on and connected with was not music necessarily, but our shared love of cinema. Micaiah, what do our listeners need to know right up front about our shared love of horror movies?
1: Yeah, well, like, like you were saying, you know, movies were actually my first love. I loved cinema as a kid much more than I did music, and I came to a lot of music through cinema that's come up a lot on the podcast you know discovering things through almost famous or through like you said Paul Thomas Anderson or the films of Quentin Tarantino and Scorsese you know so so much of my music has been shaped in how I've seen them used in movies you know so uh, movies are uh, even an influence how I listen to music so I mean, for me, I'll speak for myself first and I'll throw it to you, Rob, I, I've long loved horror movies because I got exposed to them at a very young age. What I learned later in life was too young of an age, um, as my, my wife uh, let me know as we started dating. I was like, oh, you, you never saw a Leprechaun? You didn't see Critters or Return of the Living Dead or anything? And growing up, you didn't watch that stuff? And she's like, no. I was like, and she's like, when did you watch that? I was like, kindergarten? Um, and she's like, that's horrifying. Uh, so, you know, I you know was watching some hard R rated horror at like six years old, you know? Um, but I was also watching t- uh, T2, you know, Judgment Day at six years old. I will say this,
0: as, as a parent of children, that's terrifying to me.
1: Yeah, you know, which which was wild. Uh, but, you know, I was in kindergarten, but I had neighborhood friends who were fourth, fifth grade. And which to me was just like, oh, well, of course I was watching horror movies because I had older friends. I'm like, wait, they were 10. That's also too young to be watching these horror movies um so yeah i i was exposed uh, to the good stuff you, you know so like in elementary school watching nightmare on elm street watching halloween uh you know some of these classics you know stuff that you know my wife didn't see till she was in college or out of college which i think makes her an anomaly actually i think and middle school high school i think by 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 seventh grade through your senior year of high school is prime time to watch horror movies like you you have to watch them when you still have to be young enough to really be scared by them i think i i I think it's actually good to be scared and I, i i think that's fine um this is where parents yell at me and say okay fine well then just enjoy that when you you know, your child can't sleep and they're afraid. It's just like, yeah, it's good for them. You know, you know so love, love horror films always have. Um, so this is going to, you know, so this is uh, very fun for me and very challenging and kind of hair pulling, you know, exercise. So Rob, what, what is kind of your relationship to not just cinema, but, but horror films in particular?
0: So I was raised in a very conservative Christian household and uh, the idea of watching anything, you know, horror related um, was completely off the table. So when I was a kid, um, you know, I would say probably like, you know, fourth, fifth, even sixth grade, my only exposure was really, you know, sleepovers at a friend's house when it was like, then then we'd watch something. And then, of course, like then it was, even though it was terrifying to me, I couldn't go home and tell my parents I was scared because that would let the cat out of the bag that I had watched this movie I wasn't supposed to watch. But then when I was in middle school, something happened. And um, again, this reveals my age. Uh, You know, I had an original NES Nintendo and a Super Nintendo. So I had a little TV, like an old school UHF and VHF uh, TV in my room. For the sole purpose of playing video games on, Fox started airing a show called The X-Files on Friday nights. And it became I mean, like an obsession for me. I was like, man, want to get home, watch the X-Files on Friday night. And that really began the kind of dive into kind of the alien horror movies and then into zombie horror movies and a lot of those things. Uh, and that really expanded by the time I got to high school growing up in South Florida. You know, one of the things that's true about growing up in South Florida is during the day in the summer, it's too hot and it's too humid to do anything at all. And there was a dollar theater. So a, a dollar theater is a movie theater that would show movies for a dollar, but they were movies that had already come out of regular movie theaters. So generally in the summer, they would have all of the movies that had come out the previous fall. So it was not uncommon for the Dollar Theater to be playing at least one horror movie at a time. And so we would regularly in the middle of the days during the summer, just go to the Dollar Theater and watch a horror movie. And so that was really kind of the the first real excitement for me around horror that led me really deep into the genre. Um, And really that was all kind of inspired by a movie that came out while I was in high school that I am sure we will talk about in this episode. So I don't want to let the cat out of the bag yet. And then of course, by the time I went to film school, I really loved the idea of zombie movies in particular, because I loved the idea of zombie movies really became horror movies that were about people. Like it was the the zombies were always the MacGuffin of the story. Like the zombies were always this kind of nameless, um, uh kind of brainless uh antagonist, but the protagonists were always the 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 human beings, you know, who were not zombies, who had not turned or whatever. And the way in which people would behave and treat each other, the actual horror was the horrible things people would do to each other in order to try to stay safe from the zombies. And so I loved that kind of psychological thriller, psychological horror of the awful things that we do to each other for the sake of survival. If, if we're given the full freedom to do that without the, barriers of civility, what are the things that will happen? And so those are always the movies that have, have interested me. And so um, I I think that the kind of slasher gore for gore's sake, kind of uh, horror movies have never appealed to me much. Um, I I always like there to be a a deeply unsettling psychological element. Like I, I, I want there to be suspense in, in thrill attached to the terror of the horror. And so, um, you know, in either of our lists, you're going to see the absence of Eli Roths and people like that, you know, who are, um, kind of just the next generation of who can go further over the top. Like I, I, I need intellectually a little something more than that in a horror movie. But if, if you've got that, man, I'll take it. And so listener, what we have done is Makai and I have each come up with a list of 10 10 horror, horror movies using a very similar methodology to what we do when we talk about albums, which is you can only have a single movie per director on the list. And so because of that, Makai and I are going to go back and forth. At the end of this episode, we will have the You Forgot One 20 favorite horror movies. And so a director will appear no more than twice on the list because I can only use a director once and Makai can only use a director once. So at most, you only have two films from John Carpenter. At most, you only have two films from Alfred Hitchcock. Or from Wes Craven, or I mean, it, you know, list goes on. But you're only going to have at most two per director, and so we're really going to get to see who is behind our favorite horror movies.
1: All right. Well, then let's take a break and jump right in.
0: I love it. Listener, I wanna take a quick second and tell you about Mirror Coffee Roasters. Mirror Coffee Roasters have a modern take on your coffee experience designed to elevate what's good. Their unique, lighter roasting approach paired with outstanding coffees from all around the world will leave you with delicious flavor profiles to enjoy right from your home or cafe. They believe in relationships and sustainability, and that's what you taste in every cup of Mirror Coffee Roasters. I wanna encourage you to go to their website, mirrorcoffeeroasters.com today, and pick up their coffee box, a four-bag sampler box with some of their best coffees from Colombia, Indonesia, Guatemala, in other places around the world. At Mira Coffee Roasters, the goal has always been to use coffee as a tool for change. Whether that's a bag of coffee on a kitchen counter or running a relationship focused business that goes far beyond generic marketing labels. They wanna be a force for good in the industry and beyond. So check out Mira Coffee Roasters today. Mikhail, why don't you go first?
1: There's got to be some strategy involved here Mm -hmm. because of the way we're playing this. Because we also can't choose the same movie. Mm -hmm. And and so I can... I'm in a powerful position here. But I... Because we can take movies off the list, essentially, um, I've made a list of 25... To pull from. Um, but I am i think I'm going to play this from the heart. And I'm going to choose. For my first pick. Uh, Peeping Tom. By Michael Powell. Which is a British. Slasher. Um, that came out right before. Psycho. That was just. Dead on arrival. Critics hated it. One critic said that it should just be you know, washed down the gutters. Uh, They hated it. Absolutely hated the movie. Michael Powell, who was famous in the forties for black Narcissus, the red shoes, the life and death of Colonel Blimp, a matter of life and death uh, in 1960 uh, without Emory Pressburger made this slasher that was very personal to him. And because it was so personal, I think people were just horrified by it uh, because it's about a cameraman who kills people with his camera And it is a movie that says a lot about voyeurism and filmmaking uh, to the point that a lot of film critics were very uncomfortable with what that says about filmmaking and what it says about being a film viewer. And I think that's why they didn't like it. And he made this movie that is a masterpiece that actually pretty much ended his career. Um, He made very few movies after. Um, And I... Uh, you know, I have a DVD Criterion copy of Peeping Tom. It's one of the few things I have that I would save if there were a fire. I also have an old school Criterion laser disc of Peeping Tom. I'm, I'm obsessed with this movie. Um, and i it's hard to actually watch online. I think you can rent it right now on Apple. Um, so that's that's new because sometimes it's just nowhere to be found. So if it's on Apple right now, last I checked. So if anyone hasn't seen it, um, watch this movie. This is, this is one movie that I push on people, you know, best movies of all time by one of the best filmmakers of all time. One of my favorites for sure. So my first choice, *Peeping Tom, Michael Powell.
0: I'm going to go with the other great horror movie from 1960 made by Powell's friend, the one and only Alfred Hitchcock. I am going with Psycho a trailblazing horror movie in terms of um, what it meant. Uh, the shower scene alone is one of the most iconic scenes in the history of film. Uh, you know, the character of Norman Bates played so well by Anthony Perkins, uh, it, it really kind of ruined Anthony Perkins acting career. He, he became so well known for that one character going forward um, that it really became hard for him to get, Great work just because of how wonderfully he played this this character um, in in just such a great movie. And not only is it a movie that I love, but a movie that I love so much that I saw the shot for shot Gus Van Sant 1998 remake in theaters. It's, uh, I,
1: I haven't seen it because I'm like, I. I don't understand what the point is. Uh, for me, I, 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 I'm too precious about Psycho, so I, I'll see the Gus Van Sant one day. I don't understand. I don't understand the point of watching it now. You know, in the theater, maybe it, it made more sense as to to why he would want to do that kind of experiment. Um, you know, can, can a movie that popular, that was that shocking, still play in a theater almost forty years? later you know i understand that experiment but like now going back and like streaming it it's like well that doesn't make sense so i if, you know in the age of streaming it's like what what is the point of the gus van sant version unless you're a college student who wants to write a paper comparing and contrasting the two or you know so for me there's never been a draw to the gus van sant um but you know i there are people who... there It has its defenders. It definitely has its defenders. Alrighty, righty. Um, I'm going to go with um, a, a recent favorite of mine. And um, for Halloween last year, Molly and I went to go see this in 3D in the theater. And it's George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead from 1978. Not the Zack Snyder version, which um, I just don't like. Now there are people who love that movie too, um, but I I just have no interest because I think George A. Romero's you know Dawn of the Dead from '78 is is a is a just a true blue masterpiece. I mean this I think this is like as good as it gets when you're if you want to make a horror movie or a zombie movie period i mean you were talking earlier about you know uh the appeal of zombie movies and i was never interested in zombie movies so much and then post covid i was like i get this now um it just started to make more sense and dawn of the dead with them hiding in a mall and the zombies wanting in the mall and not knowing why and there's there's so much there's humor in it but um, so much of that that social commentary that you're talking about, about class and race and uh, and, and gender, even, uh, that, you know, that is revealed in these, like, dire situations. Um, I just think it's a full-blown masterpiece, and I'll, and I'll watch it every year. Again, that's another DVD that's hard to track down, that's long been out of print. I have a DVD copy of it, but... Um, it's not as precious to me as sleeping Tom. Um, but nevertheless, I'm still happy to have it on my shelves. So, yeah, I mean, I think that this it, it's just, it's so inspiring. It's so smart. It's so brutal. And I mean, all of those movies are extremely bleak day of the dead, um, probably being the most bleak of them all and set in Florida. So, you know, you, I love it automatically. Um, but yeah, so for me, uh, Dawn of the dead is, is my pick.
0: It's interesting that you own Dawn of the dead, and again, I'm with you. Great movie. Um, I think I think George Romero, I mean, really defined the genre of zombie movies. But I'm going to go with the original of the trilogy. I'm going to go with 1968's Night of the Living Dead, uh, the George Romero classic, which is really a a zombie movie in black and white that is essentially about racism and about. Um, the ways in which the zombies um, again are are kind of just moving the story along but the story is ultimately about this group of people who kind of huddled together in this house for safety and uh, without giving too much away um, the race of one of the characters who's huddled in this house Uh, It comes up again and again, and then ultimately comes up in a huge way at the end of the movie. Um, And so I wrote when I was in film school, I actually wrote a paper about uh, George A. Romaro's Night of the Living Dead. And, you know, there's the old saying, some of the greatest truths are said in jest. I think George A. Romaro was really one of the first directors to figure out that you could actually say some of the greatest truths in horror rather than in jest.
1: And, um, you know, it came out in 1968, which is the year King was assassinated and uh, the Watts riot, one of them, um, you know, so it was a huge year um, where race was being discussed and it's kind of the rise of, of black power is, is happening around the time as well. So there's a fear of that. You know, eventually Hoover's going to say the black power party, uh, the Black Panther Party is the biggest threat to America. You know, so that that's kind of the context of that movie, which is so brutal and also just one of the most important independent films uh, in American cinema. Um, so I think that's a great movie. Yeah, our our list so far keeps mirroring uh, each other, uh, which is really fun. Um, but you know, I I I made a list of twenty five and I started ranking them. And so where I am now in that list is um, a movie I know that you love. And I'm, and I'm going to say this. I think it's also one of the best American movies ever made, uh, made by an absolute horror icon, Wes Craven. That's the 1996 movie written by Kevin Williamson, screen.
0: It is a perfect horror movie.
1: I agree. I think it, it has it, everything is dialed correctly mm-hmm. uh, the teenagers um everyone's playing at the height of their intelligence which is really great um the you know there's the the very 90s postmodern meta aspect to it where the people in the movie have seen horror movies and have studied horror movies in a, in a way that they know they're like okay here are the rules this is what to expect this is what happens in a horror movie if you do this you'll die you know and that's that's exciting that's fun to watch um you know this is what i saw at a very early age the original trilogy saw them very young and i mean just fell in love and i i I watch definitely the first two um annually um scream is a movie i wish i had written which is like oh if you could just like get a right and Chris like, uh, scream. I, w- I wish I had written that. Cause that that's just to me, just like such a fun, smart idea that just created a new, not, not really a blueprint, but just like kind of a new standard, you know, for just how, you know, it, it does things that are so shocking in the beginning of the movie that had been done before they, they had done that, that, that gimmick had been done before. And it works in Scream to great effect. And everything that happens later is just, I mean, and and when you watch that movie, you realize it's really only like 12 scenes, Mm -hmm. like maybe, like, but every scene really counts. You know, they make every scene count and they, uh, you know, and the final 30 minutes might even be 40 minutes because by the time they get to, to Stu's house for the party in the, the movie, I mean, when you're the, like you, you're, you're just watching and you're like, holy shit, are we already? Every time I rewatch, I'm like, are we already at Stu's house? You know, like how much time do we have left? Like, wow, we're just going to be rolling.
0: It's not just a great horror movie. It's not just a, a well-written horror movie. It, it might be a master class in pacing of a movie. Absolutely, it, it is. It is. It is one of the most effectively paced movies I've ever seen. No, absolutely.
1: And you know, but I mean, we shall also, also want to say, you know, the the director of photography is Peter Deming, who's David Lynch's cinematographer. You know, so they're the, the combination of of high art, highbrow art and entertainment, and lowbrow like slash entertainment is perfectly dialed. That's one of those other dials I'm talking about being just like perfectly set and. The cast. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't get a better cast in 1996. For that. I mean, Matthew Lillard, I get for my money, gives one of the best performances of his generation of actors.
0: Wholeheartedly agree. My my sister. So you know, I mentioned in the intro. You know, this was that a movie that came out when I was a sophomore in high school kind of changed the whole approach to horror movies. And and I think for people in my generation who grew up in the 90s when this movie came out, it was the thing that kind of lit the fuse to spark their interest in going back to, to those old horror movies and the rules of those old horror movies, which by the way, December, 1996. Oh, I, uh, yeah. So I
1: have been dumped in a worse time mm-hmm. for horror
0: and was a
1: smash.
0: Hit. I, I will tell you that following summer, the summer of 1997, I think realistically, my sister and I watched Scream no less than once a week, the entire summer. What's the matter, Sydney? You look like you've seen a ghost. <laughs> Why are you doing this? It's all part of the game, Sydney. It's called Guess or I'm Gonna Die! Fuck you! No, no, no,
1: no, no. We already played that game, remember? You lost. It's a fun game, Sydney. See, we ask you a question that if you get it wrong, you die. You get it right?
0: You die. You're crazy, both of you.
1: I just need one word. I'm, I'm like a bad improv team. If you just give me one word that reminds me of Scream, I'll do the scene from front to back. Just like, bam, Sid, super bitch. Like, I, like everything everyone says, even like the problematic stuff, I'm just like, I cannot believe this was in a movie like Sid or Rose McGowan telling, you know, Sydney that like she's been sexually anorexic since her mom died. I'm like, man, that is some nineties bullshit that you are not going to hear in a movie again. This is wild. You know, just the way everyone talks is so great. Jamie Kennedy dialing it all the way up. Matthew Lillard dialed all the way up, you know, and I mean, I don't know who hasn't seen Scream, but we're talking about one of the best finales
0: Mm -hmm. in a movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, not just a horror movie, but, like, really any movie. You know, it's just, it's so fun. And, I mean, it's just, what Kevin Williamson did with those movies is incredible. I think the second one is not as good, but has a lot of great stuff in it. And I think he didn't do the third one, which is Trash um but the fourth one i think is also has a lot west craven's last movie uh scream four has a lot of great stuff in it as well um so if people haven't watched scream four go back and watch that because i think that one is um great if you just count one two and four as kind of a trilogy um it's 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 a really strong group of movies yeah
0: Going in a very different direction, this will be the first one that we are not mirroring. And it's probably because if, if you hadn't have just taken Scream, it would have been my next pick. Um, so I'm going to go with what I had next, which is um, you want to talk about a movie that trades in hours of deeply unsettling and claustrophobia and agoraphobia together. Um, isolation, all of those things, and directed by maybe the master of communicating those emotions to film. Stanley Kubrick's 1980 masterpiece, The Shining. Um, of course, everyone knows what a great performance, uh, Jack Nicholson gives in the film, everyone has heard the horror stories of the ways in which um, Stanley Kubrick really kind of abused uh, his his actors in in this movie um, in ways that would not have flown today. Uh, well, Shelley I, Duvall in
1: particular. Yeah. It's weird because he just kind of let Jack roll. And for the kid, he never let the kid know that he was in a horror movie so he treated him extremely well but for Shelley Duvall i mean there's there if you get the dvd there's a documentary on the making of the shining uh, he's an asshole to her mm-hmm. and you know being but you know and she later
0: of- she later wrote about like how she, i mean she really had to get therapy afterwards because of how yeah. um i mean she she uh, she went crazy because of the way she was treated in the process. So, yeah, I mean, it, but again, the way all of that gets portrayed, um, we I mean all that gets portrayed on screen and then some of the most iconic shots we've ever seen in a horror movie. And maybe again, I'm, I'm showing my cards here, but this is my, for me, my favorite kind of horror movie is the slow build, of unsettling tension rather than the like you know the the jump scare thing or you know going over the top with gore like for me none of that is as as effective as the slow build of tension
1: you know it's crazy that it, it didn't do well when it came out people did not like it it was not a success um but we think of it now we, we now we think of it as essential but back then it, it was not you know Uh, i guess they expected more from like a kubrick jack nicholson you know um stephen king kind of trifecta um but so it was not the classic that it was it wasn't an instant classic but you know maybe the, the videotape era helped that um you said you don't like slashers or don't prefer slashers i do i love slashers um and one of my favorites this is another new favorite for me came out 1982 by amy holden jones it's called slumber party massacre and i love this movie i think i I find it just endlessly inspiring um uh, produced uh, by roger corman which means there are certain obligations like nudity so there's plenty of that um but I, ju- I just think it's incredible um written by a woman who was originally setting out to write a, a satire on horror films but then was directed quite earnestly um by uh the woman the woman who directed it is actually the wife of cinematographer michael chapman uh who worked with scorsese on taxi driver and raging bull um a little, little back there and I mean, she, I mean, I think she directed the hell out of this movie. So, and, and it's heralded for being kind of a feminist slasher. You have this guy who's running around with this big phallic drill, you know, just kind of penetrating women with it. And, you know, and that's, you know, all the kills in horror movies are, are kind of sexual in nature um because they rely on penetration you know so there's always some kind of subtext between sex and violence and and, and horror films and this one um kind of just puts the subtext right out there um so there's you know it's not a masked killer either which is really interesting to me and it's not even 80 minutes long it's like 78 minutes and boy do i love that the older i get um so yeah this it's just a, a really great like it looks like shot, it's probably shot in 16 millimeter Roger Corman, you know, kind of exploitation-y kind of um independent movie that just I that really, really inspires me um, as someone who thinks about not, not just you know, who doesn't just watch films to just enjoy them, but really thinks about filmmaking um, and what it takes to to make a movie and shoot a movie and write a movie. Um I just find it very inspiring and um yeah it's hard it's hard to talk about because this is one that maybe not everyone has seen so i i don't want to spoil anything but it's it's mostly a cast of women and i love the depiction of violence because the women have to defend themselves and they're not total badasses like sydney and scream it i i think what makes it so interesting is that the women who have to defend themselves are horrified by what they have to do which is how violence actually is um you know um b- being traumatized by committing active violence and not just not just being a victim of violence but actually having to commit an act of violence i think that's what makes it, it grounds the movie a little bit more than other horror movies actually by watching the women react to what they have to do to defend themselves against this this murderer. uh, which you know that's one of the fascinating points for me. I highly recommend it. It's streaming on the Criterion channel right now. I think Shout Factory put out a Blu-ray version of it that I don't have. I, I think it was Shout Factory. Um or like Arrow or Vinegar Syndrome, one of those. But um so it's is it's out there and it's available to watch. So if anyone hasn't seen it, I, I highly recommend it.
0: Oh, I, I I keep going back and forth on this one, but I'm I'm gonna stick with it because it's so um it's just so weird in the best ways. Um, I'm going to go with a Roman Polanski movie and I'm not going with Rosemary's baby. I'm going instead with his, uh, 1965 British movie repulsion starring Catherine Deneuve. And, uh, man, a, a more unsettling movie there has not been. Um, again, kind of what you were hinting at earlier, the the weird relationship between horror and sex. Um, there is th- There are a lot of horror movies that play with that. There are some horror movies, especially in the 70s and 80s, a lot of them were kind of just, I think, excuses for graphic violence and nudity together um, really uh, focus around the idea of the, a woman who has been raped getting vengeance Uh, repulsion instead is a movie about a woman who has a sister she lives with, who is seeing a man and, um, the relationship causes her to be more and more angry and more and more distant um, and then ultimately uh, to begin having hallucinations of um, of, of sexual abuse and in response to the hallucinations she is having, she begins to kill and uh, the end of the movie the reveal of the end of the movie hints at a much deeper, much more unsettling horror. Um, but one that we know, unfortunately does happen and happens all too often. Um, and so really what we find out is that this is a woman who is experiencing the very real, uh, post-traumatic stress of childhood abuse and, uh, a, a deeply unsettling movie, um, one that and, and there's a lot of horror movies like this, but this is one maybe more than any other uh some horror movies sit with you like they they stay with you there are some horror movies that after you watch them you you still like they've gotten into you somehow and have made you feel um in repulsion is one of those movies that once you watch it uh, uh man it 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 kind of it kind of never gets out of your system. Let's see. All
1: right. Um, Again, I said, I like slashers. My next one is a slasher. Um, It's from Canada. Um, By the, 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 the claim director, Bob Clark, uh, known for a Christmas story. Uh, Before he did that, he made a movie called black Christmas. Which came out in 1974. Um, which Which is,
0: is which is a truly great slasher film
1: it's great it's it is it is a one of the main movies that inspires halloween john carpenter's halloween uh one for the way the slasher is approached and two um having a horror movie set during a holiday so he he liked both of those things um the kills are fantastic and graphic um Another one of the kind of calls coming from inside the house kind of things. I don't know if it's the first to do that, but it's certainly effective. I think John Saxon is in this one as well. Um, yeah, again, for me, just totally inspiring. Um, Margo Kidder uh, is in it and, and is great. Um, Andrea Arnold from Second City TV, you know, is, is in it as well. Um, very young and Andrea Arnold. Um, yeah, it's one of the most influential horror movies. Um, got a, a, I have a nice, the new restored Blu-ray of that as well. Um, so if anyone, you know, this one's on Criterion sometime. So it, it's streaming. It's available. It's out there, um, but a little lost in time. You know it should be known like Halloween, yet it's not. And I probably attribute that to this. Some like there's been a couple bad remakes of it, uh, which is unfortunate. But the original '74, I think, is just a masterclass in. I mean, so it's one of the most important slasher movies ever made. Um, Not just because it gets us to Halloween, but because uh, it's just incredibly crafted movie i mean i think the killer is the the, the approach the slasher character um, himself i think is uh masterful black christmas i think that's my number five so i think we're at the halfway point
0: yeah and so for my number five i'm gonna do the movie that it uh had a massive influence on uh john carpenter's 1978 classic halloween um a phenomenal movie the introduction of jamie lee curtis and her film debut and she couldn't be better in it um introducing us to one of the most iconic pieces of horror movie uh film music um in this piano piece that's actually written by john carpenter um and it's just such a, I mean, it's truly just such a classic. And again, we've already, we've already alluded to Scream, but this is a movie that gets a lot of uh, conversation in Scream as well. Uh, introduces us to Michael Myers, who is one of the truly great um, horror movie characters uh, who, you know, like all great horror movie characters are sequel to death. Um, and and so that has kind of been the nature of uh, the Halloween uh, um, universe now. Uh, but man, that first movie is just so good. And and again, it goes back to this idea of it roots the terror, it roots the horror in something real. It you know it it roots the terror in a. A brother who is an escaped mental patient, um, which you know, the the ways in which those movies kind of jump the shark seven times over by the time they get to like Halloween four, uh, you know, where he seems to be, um, you know, an indestructible zombie rather than you know a, a brother trying to reach his sister, uh, but that that really is the the kind of crux of, of Halloween and it, and it works. And by the way, one of the things that, you know, McKay we haven't talked enough about is the reality that there are so many great directors that start off doing horror movies or that have taken a turn doing horror movies. And one of the reasons why can be credited back to this 1978 film Halloween when A movie that was made for a budget of about $300,000 grossed $70 million the year it came out. And so if you want to talk about uh, profit margins in uh, American cinema, Halloween is statistically one of the single most profitable movies of all time in terms of the amount spent versus the amount made
1: well that's what's so great about horror in general um pretty cheap to make a lot of them so you know the bloom house model which you know jason bloom is pretty much the roger corman of his era essentially um, except he's maybe not creating the careers for as many people as as corman did but you know, the Blumhouse model is to shoot a movie for a million maybe a million dollars, maybe $3 million. And then when the weekend with, you know, maybe make 10, 15, 20, 30 on, you know, the first week and you're going to make your money back because people show up for horror movies, horror movies are one genre that have not suffered like ever in American box office comedies, studio comedies hardly come out anymore um people don't go to see the big oscar movies because adults don't like seeing dramas anymore they like comic book movies or movies about uh, video games or toys um or just re-watching movies that came out when they were children now live action versions of them or something um, but horror um is one of, like well because kids can go see horror movies and kids want to go see horror movies and that that's a consumer that you always want to have So, yeah, you can always shoot them for pretty cheap. And we've talked about this a lot is, you know, when you're, you know, backed into a corner and you have to be creative with the limited resources that you have, it kind of forces upon you, right. uh, You know, more creative ways to get your vision across. And a lot of times that's, you know, what's, uh, what makes these movies stand out is how, how much are you able to do with, you know the little that you're given. Blair Witch, Saw, Halloween, by the Living Dead, right? Uh, a lot of the mo- most iconic horror movies of all time. Shoestring budgets. Horror is just um just an exciting genre that's very unappreciated. Um, that's that's a a different conversation. Maybe that'll come up. Now I'm torn here because I want to pick a movie from toby hooper and i know that the pick that makes the most sense is texas chainsaw massacre because it is one of the great american films period um but i've got so slasher heavy and i i kind of want to go with with my heart on this one and this is controversial because a lot of people don't even think that Toby Hooper directed this movie. Well, I'm a big fan of Poltergeist. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the 1982 movie Poltergeist uh, with Craig T. Nelson, aka Coach uh, Joe Beth Williams, and uh, people say you know it's written by spielberg who couldn't direct this movie because he was directing et at the same time they're pretty they're, they're narrowly the same neighborhood um and they come out just a week apart um so et was supposed to be like an american dream and poltergeist was supposed to be an american nightmare but actually you know i wish i had picked this one closer to when you said the shining because i actually think that the shining and poltergeist have a lot in common um what's interesting about the shining is that the photo at the very end of the shining is for july 4th 1921 and what happens in the the beginning of poltergeist is um i think it's the national anthem because it's supposed to be like 4th of july weekend you know the celebration of america you know and you know, the big famous line in poltergeist is, you know, you move the stones, but you didn't move the bodies because it's built on a, this house is built on the ancient burial ground, you know? So it's, which is the same with the overlook, right? In Colorado, you know, it's it's the land of, you know, the indigenous people where they built this big fancy hotel on that's being haunted, you know? And I think of the shining, a lot of people interpret the shining in a lot of ways, but I think it's just my interpretation of the shining is that it's just about. um, the ongoing violence of of white men, you know, the slaughtering of indigenous people, um, and then you take that 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 frontiersman and you domesticate him, and then all of that violence goes toward his family, you know. And so, uh, Poltergeist is, is similar in that it's haunted by the same legacy of, of America's sins and is also domesticated but it's still spielbergian so the family you know coach isn't trying to kill his family um but you know one of their you know their one of his children the youngest daughter is in this realm that was completely jacked by stranger things um been parodied to death by even you know family guy and the simpsons um but i just think the craftsmanship and Poltergeist. I mean, so many great visual effects and special effects in 1982 that I think hold up really well. I mean, that tree is just disgusting and straight up scary. And the clown doll. Um, you know, the way Jo Beth Williams is going up on the walls So they'll do again a Nightmare on Elm Street. Or the stretching hallway when she runs to save her kids. Uh, the stake and the peeling off of the face. You know, there's so many just great moments um that are just fantastic and scary and they hold up really really well um yeah so i I think poltergeist uh and and this is another great movie to fall in love with as a kid because you start realizing that there are all these kind of myths about the making of it and there's a lot of tragedies for every time they make one of these movies someone from the cast dies tragically or mysteriously and you know it so it, it becomes much you know larger than life kind of thing where it's like is there something going is this a cursed movie is this a cursed franchise you know so watching it as a kid you're like uh you're like there are like real life consequences to making these movies you know so it, it makes it that much scarier as a kid knowing that there were some really spooky things making it, um, real skeletons being used instead of fake ones, for example. Um, so there's really creepy stuff in, like that's in camera and creepy stuff behind the scenes and that happen afterward, you know? So it's just has a whole other life, you know, um, outside of just like the, the movie itself, which
0: adds to, you know, the, the spookiness of it all. Um- I'm going to do, so I'm going to do a personal pick. So uh, in the fall of 2001, when I transferred to the university of central Florida to go to film school, um, I went uh, in, not in large part, but at least in some part because the school had proven that it could produce uh, successful filmmakers and I am talking about the partnership that is Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez, who are famous for making the 1999 movie The Blair Witch Project. Um, and and again, when you think about this movie coming out three years after Scream, that was so smart and built around all of these rules of horror movies, the idea of introducing us to... Um, a horror movie that essentially functions as found footage, uh, is, I mean, it, 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 may seem like an obvious thing now, but when it came out, it was such a unique idea. Like it was, it was so original. Um, and then because it was this really kind of virtually unknown pair of guys who were graduates of the university of central Florida film program, um, no one really knew who they were. No one knew the actors uh, or actress that's in the movie. And so it it really was able to kind of function as like, oh, this is just found footage and it it works and it holds up in ways that you might not expect. Now, of course, there are a lot of people in, in the theater who had a problem with it because it is people running around holding a camcorder essentially. So it's uh, it is very shaky footage. It's six, I mean, it's 16 millimeter footage, but, uh, it's very shaky footage. And you know, that, that of course bears itself out over the course of the movie. And so some people are unsettled by the, by the shaking of, um, the screen, but man, I, I think, you know, a a very well done movie. I can still remember the day that I saw it. Me and my friend Garrett saw it at three o'clock in the afternoon. So it was not even five yet when we got out of the movie theater in South Florida, sun shining. And it was one of those things where it was like, man, I feel a little scared to walk to my car.
1: Yeah. I mean the, the buzz around that movie when it came out was wild because people, people thought it was a documentary. People could not tell the difference between film and reality. And my God, you must just be patting yourself on the back endlessly after making that movie to just stump so many people into not even knowing. And it's crazy because you have all these people who are now convinced that this is reality. None of the cast get nominated for acting. And yet people think this is reality this is you know what i was alluding to earlier when i said the horror is not recognized or appreciated these these young people made it. i mean this is now this became the most profitable movie because they truly shot with shoestring budget a no string budget i mean this i mean this is very inexpensive makes an ungodly amount of money
0: yeah. So two hundred and two hundred and forty thousand total is spent to make the movie. And the movie has and the movie has made just over two hundred and fifty million.
1: Incredible. Incredible. You know, so yeah, and, and and not 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 fully appreciated for the artistry, but just celebrated as kind of being this gimmicky success story instead of people who really pulled off something artistically that was really great. So, Caring is one of the great Stephen King adaptations. It's one of the great Brian De Palma movies. Uh, comes out in 76. Sissy's Basic is amazing. Um, but I'm going to choose uh, the 1972 movie Sisters by Brian De Palma.
0: Uh, in in interesting movie and kind of a wild pick. Tell us tell us why this movie.
1: Um, I just think it's incredible, and then this is again, um, very, you know, it's it's kind of you know the the burgeoning American independent cinema, and at this point, De Palma is the guy. All right, so Spielberg, Scorsese, um, Coppola, Lucas, they all think the world of Brian De Palma because he's, he's a great technician, you know? So right now, you know, um, that this, at this point in his career, this is the guy to watch, you know, um, they think that he's the, he's the next thing and sisters is one of those movies where you're, you're like, you would understand why they would think that he's the next big thing uh, because he just has such an incredible vision and such an incredible understanding of how to use the camera and and where to put it. I mean, you, you see this again in things like body double, Dress to kill, you know, Carrie, like I said earlier. But uh, Sisters is him doing all of that stuff before he has the big kind of studios behind him to really make things with um, that, you know, he has all the ambition of a big studio director without having all the the budget to really do it, but Sisters is something really incredible, and um, De Palma is really well known for using split screen, and Sisters um, to me has the best use of split screen um now blowout and just to, you know blowout is my favorite diploma movie and just to kill has some incredible split screen as well a bit more confident but the split screen stuff in sisters the way he uses that um to tell the, the story is to me just fascinating and inspiring like really awe-inspiring stuff um and it's one of those things from, like, why isn't everyone jacking this? Why isn't everyone trying to do the split-screen thing? Like, why, why aren't more people... Everyone's ripping off Scorsese and Spielberg all the time. Why isn't the Palma being more ripped off? Um, I really think that... Yeah, maybe it's because he's it's too definitive, you know? Um, but Sisters is, um, again, Margot Kidder. Um, huh. There's a, again, I don't want to give too much away, but there's some really gross business with a birthday cake and um, a murder and a disposal of a body that is very unique and interesting. And then again, a woman who witnesses this and no one believes her. And then as she gets closer to the truth, uh, there's a little bit of a Shutter Island kind of thing where they try to make her out to think, you know, convince her that she's crazy, you know, so a lot of psychological stuff, there's some great gore. Um, but just from a filmmaking perspective, I think is just a great kind of 101 on just great filmmaking.
0: Yeah. I'm going to go Jordan Peele's 2017 movie, Get Out. Yeah. Um, a a great horror movie, very well done um, about racism, but in in a done in just a really peculiar way. And man the the scene the scene where she is basically using the the hypnosis has kind of frozen him into the chair while he's telling the story. Of his mother's death. Um, man, just the the acting in that scene alone makes this a great movie. Uh, but man, just what, how, how phenomenally done and really funny, like, like a, a, a movie that is both scary and funny. And so one of the things that I love about Scream and one of the things that really is going to be a highlight of the rest of the movies that I mentioned is going to be using comic relief as a tension breaker in a horror movie and get out. Does it perfectly?
1: Yeah. I mean, as I mean, that's, that's a Blumhouse model, right? This, this is the new era of horror. This is it, you know, and Jordan Peele has, you know, it's great because he does get out and you're like, is this going to be like a one and done kind of guy? He has us, which is good, but isn't as good as, as get out. And then Nope comes out and i like Nope more than get out. I think that Nope is his best movie so far. I, I thought Nope really blew me away and thought like, okay, this is not just a guy. I mean, this, this is, this is a new, he can, he can compete with the Spielberg and the Spielberg monopies, which, and, and he's making something that, you know, I, I, I thought Nope, nope is the one that now sticks with me the most. And I was actually tempted to put it on on my list uh, because, you know, it it made that big an impression on me. My next one is a French movie, also from 1960, um, called Eyes Without a Face. Um, Very fantastical movie, um, black and white, French, as I said. Um, a huge one for Guillermo del Toro. He's he's he spoke a lot about this movie, you know, and, and, and it uh, features a a young female character who has this mask on that is just so eerie and so frightening. But there's something sweet about this movie and fantastical. And again, I I, I don't want to spoil anything but it left such an impression on me that by the end of this movie i actually got teary-eyed which doesn't happen a lot for for horror movies um but there's there's yeah there's there's something else happening here that isn't just like traditional horror and you know it is french um you know so you know it's automatically a little different than the american sensibility Um, but one that just had a big emotional impact on me that i really loved it and and again there's the i think it's on hbo max and there's a great criterion blu-ray out on this one as well with a lot of special features so uh ice without a face uh, 1960 highly recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it i think it's you know kind of quietly um another one of the kind of more influential horror movies for a lot of like the directors out there like Guillermo.
0: I've, I've gone back and forth about what movie is going to be next. And I, you know, I know I just said that the combination of horror and comedy would be a future, but I am changing a movie in real time. And so I am going to do a, something I wasn't originally planning on doing, but I, I think it's a well-done movie. And so also thinking about horror movies that, really kind of took culture by surprise in some ways. Um, and so I am going with the 2002 Gore Verbinski remake of the ring. Um, the ring of course, originally was a 1998 Japanese film made by Hideo Nakata. Um, and it was based on a 1991 novel by Koji Suzuki. Um, but it, it essentially, you you've seen the movie there's a cursed videotape and if you watch it you'll die um and man that first one uh the they they made a follow up to it uh and then really kind of the grudge and dark water were kind of versions of you know remakes to it as well but really that first ring movie that first gore verbinski remake uh the english language remake Man, that was such a great movie, uh, and Naomi Watts is fantastic in it. Uh, Brian Cox is great in it. Uh, the kid, uh, 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 Martin Henderson is the is the boy's name. He's fantastic in it. Uh, it's just a really well done movie, and it is a horror movie that again, kind of really leaning into that unsettling, you know, tension building. Uh, it's a very scary movie, and yet this is a PG-13 horror movie. I mean, there's there's not anything you really see that is that terrifying. It it really sticks to that old kind of Hitchcockian model of what you don't see as more terrifying.
1: Yeah, I mean, instantly iconic. Um, even though it was a remake. Um, and really kind of set the tone for the early aughts, which was a pretty exciting time actually for horror from like 2002 to like 2004. I mean, there was actually quite a bit of like really good horror at that time that, and then by the end of the decade, it was just all bad sequels of those few movies. It seemed like good pick. Yeah. I didn't see that one coming. Um, we have to get another John Carpenter on the list. And, um, I'm going to dip into a different territory here and go into the sci-fi horror a little bit. Another movie from 1982. uh, It's this movie, The Thing, uh, with Kurt Russell and Keith David, um, which is just, um, now, you know, being called a masterpiece, which again, was not very successful when it came out. Um, probably I would say actually most definitely the best horror makeup in a movie ever um, I think that's I think that's, uh, the, the, that's the general consensus um, so and I'm not a big body horror guy necessarily but um, the way it's used here is just very exciting and very thrilling um I mean, one of the best scenes in any movie for dramatic tension, it was like, wow, now that's a great idea. Like this, this is, this is movie making is when the three guys are strapped to the chair and they learn that, you know, part of the thing where, you know, it'll defend itself, you know, so they're trying to figure out who's infected and who's not. They have these three guys strapped to a chair. Um, And that's the rest that I'll say. That scene alone is one of the best scenes of the eighties. I mean, just truly incredible. Um, you know, it's um, a great, you know, kind of uh, one location movie, really. Um, great Snowden movie, uh, great sci fi horror. I mean, a great, you know, great monster movie, makeup movie, you know, mystery movie. You know, like it, it, it's kind of the best of all those subgenres. You know, it, it really is. Um, Halloween, I think, will always be John Carpenter's most iconic and the thing that, like, really set him up to be who he is. Um, But the thing, in a number of ways, I think, is his his greatest accomplishment. Um, And, um, you know, and I'm also a big fan of They Live, which I think is another great accomplishment um, in another way. Um, You know, kind of a great intellectual accomplishment. Um, But I think the thing is maybe his... His greatest masterwork.
0: Um, So I am going to... uh, My last two movies, my last two horror movies, what they will have in common is I believe these are the best two zombie movies to come out in the 21st century thus far. So the first um, directed by none other than Danny Boyle, who had famously made Train Spotting before this. Uh, I'm going with 28 Days Later. Uh, and 28 Days Later really succeeds in that it introduces a wider audience to the idea of zombies that were not slow-moving kind of herds, which was really the common view of zombies you know it was kind of the film rule of zombies up to this point was these kind of like lifeless slow-moving herds of the undead 28 days later really rooted the idea in into this idea of a virus so the zombies would run in sprint and hunt um And man, what, again, what a deeply unsettling movie. But again, like all great zombie movies, the movie in the end becomes about how the most horrific things that happen are not done by the zombies, but by the people trying to survive. Um, A brilliantly done movie. um, And uh, Danny Boyle is masterful in his direction. So I'm sticking with the 2002, 28 Days Later.
1: All right, for my last one, let's, after we do 10, let's also do Hard Sleeve Off. My number 10, I don't have any vampire movies. I love vampire movies, so I'm going to get a vampire pick in here. And I'm going to do Near Dark from 1987 by Catherine Bigelow. Uh I've also directed Hurt Locker and Point Break. Um, yeah, my favorite movie of hers is Near Dark. Um, and... One thing I love about this is Act One. I I, I love that the, this is the only horror movie I can think of where, like, you really actually enjoy the romance because there are so many like horror movies where like teens run off and they're a couple, you know, they're a couple and they're you know uh, romantic, but you don't care. You just want to see one of them get killed, but like you buy the romance in this opening scene. And I really took to that. I really liked that a lot. And uh, this group of vampires, uh, uh, very punk rock, leather jackets. I mean, Bill Paxton, I mean, just given us the performance of his career in this movie. I mean, this is Twister. I love Twister. But I mean, he is going for it here. You know, I i think this is, I mean, just just a... A great '80s movie, very '80s, but like the cool '80s. There's like a lot of like corny '80s stuff, and there's some like cool '80s stuff. This is a cool '80s thing, you know. This I mean, this is the same year Evil Dead Two came out, uh, which arguably I should have picked, but I'm going with what I want to do. I love a good vampire story, and this is one of my favorite ones. I love that there's a guy who's been turned into a vampire, and his dad does blood transfusions. It's just like you take the shit out of me, you know, I, I, you know, just like finding new ways to approach vampire stories um, always interests me. 30 days and 30 nights um, did that or 30 days of night. That's what it's called. Thirty days of night um, was, it was a great, I'm like, that's an A plus idea, you know, vampires and like Alaska river where it's 30 days of night and they just go to work. Great blade. Great. Midnight Mask. Great. I love I love a great take on vampires. In your dark is one of my favorite takes uh, on vampires. Um, not an easy one to find either. Um, it pops up on streaming now and again, um, but highly recommend it. Um, especially if you're a fan of Catherine Bigelow and you haven't seen this one. Yeah, because it, it's just so cool and so fun. Just just I mean, just to see Bill packs and just going for it, dialed all the way up. I just love this movie. So that's going to be my 10th my spot.
0: All right. For my 10th spot, I am going with... This may be cheating a little bit because I, I don't officially know that we would call this a horror movie. This, for me, is a hilarious comedy set in the world of a horror movie. Um, but again, when you talk about... Uh, doing something original. And that's really the issue is, is so much of the way horror movies are made. um, I mean, it's just so much remaking of kind of the same ideas over and over again. Uh, And so the idea of doing something really original um, always is important to me. So I am going with 2009's Zombieland. Directed by Ruben Fleischer. Um, again, not much of a horror movie in terms of you know things that actually scare or or terrorize, um, but a hilarious movie. Um, in in really for for someone who has often found the most interesting thing in zombie movies to be what happens to the people in that setting, and I mean so much of you know, a show like the walking dead, like that was, you know, it's really what, what are the people like, what happens to the people in, in that world? Uh, Zombieland gives such a hilarious uh, approach um, to what life is like uh, in, in the backtrack of the setting. And then maybe, I mean, without a doubt, the hardest I have laughed in a movie theater as an adult the hardest i have laughed in a movie theater as an adult is uh not to give too much away in this movie but the scene where bill murray shows up um man it i I could i've watched that movie probably 10 times and if i saw that scene right now i would still fall on the floor laughing it is one of the funniest things i've ever seen
1: and that's 10, right? That's 10 for both of us? All right. Well, then let's, let's talk about the hardest ones to leave off. Um, so, you know, I'm we didn't get any Universal Monster movies in here. Um, and I think Frankenstein is a masterpiece. I actually think it's a great experimental studio film. Um, nevertheless, that's not going to be my pick. Um, and other like sci-fi horror, Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think is up there. Um, we don't have any like shallow Italian horror, um, by Dario Argento, and I think Suspiria is worth mentioning here. Um, but, um, no werewolves movies either. Um, an American Werewolf in London with the Rick Baker makeup by John Landis uh, is just incredible. Um, but for me, I'm uh, I, I I think I may have I should have probably made room for um, some 21st century horror, um, and you know I, I talked about Bloomhouse being kind of what's generating horror right now, um, but A24 is the other studio that's bringing out um, a brand of what people are calling elevated horror, which nobody likes that term um and one of the most exciting filmmakers like him or not of the last 10 years five years even is Ari Aster um and his movie hereditary from 2018 with Tony Collette who should have been nominated for an Oscar um was just shotgun blast of a movie I mean hereditary was just wow wow um a great cult movie devil worship um rooted in the idea you know it's called hereditary so there's a lot of what's being passed down by the family you know so there there is this kind of like generational trauma in the subtext um while also being this kind of movie about like a, a cult um but i mean just in terms of combining just, um, kind of low art genre pictures with just, um, incredible craftsmanship, hereditary, you know, in the last few years has just been, uh, this, this great example of, uh, what, what horror is going to be really for the next 10 or more years. I mean, I think it's created, it's already created, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, things like the Bob Duke and It Follows kind of spearheaded this elevated horror thing, but Hereditary just took it to like the absolute next level. And I think that you can see a lot of people looking to Hereditary and being like, all right, that's where the bar is set. So we have to, we got to match it or exceed Hereditary. I think that's the new bar. Like it, that's where the bar has been set. So Rob, what what was your, your hardest to leave off?
0: So actually, the one I was going to name, which you you ended up kind of referring to this um, era of movies, and so I, I, it feels like it, we've mentioned it now. So I was going to name The Babadook, like kind of this 21st century kind of elevated horror, um, kind of moving in a different direction. You know, I think Jennifer Kent as you know, fantastical director on that movie. Um, but, you know, I... As, as someone who was born in 1980 and was really raised with the, you know, the video store that had the horror section where, you know, the, the boxes of the movies were really defined by, you know, really five or six different kind of characters. And then there would be nine sequels, you know, to all of those movies. Um, you know, we we don't really have any of those represented. You know, we don't have, uh, you know, Child's Play. We don't have Chucky. We don't have, um, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. So Freddy Krueger is not showing up on our list. Uh, you know, we do have Halloween. So we have Michael Myers. Um, but, you know, the, the one that I think often gets underappreciated is... The Friday the Thirteenth movies, um, Friday the Thirteenth two going forward, are all about Jason Voorhees. It's all it's all this kind of you know again kind of the the very similar to the Michael Myers thing where like you know it's a mask covering a person. They're not they're not real. They're monster, but they're you know it, this kind of like unliving thing. But the original Friday the Thirteenth. And again, spoiler alert, if you've never seen the original, it wasn't about a monster. It was about a mother mourning the death of her child and blaming the camp counselors who were more interested in being teenagers and hooking up with each other than actually watching out for her kid who couldn't swim. And so... The original Friday the 13th, uh, I think, is is so well done. And so I, I, I hate that we don't have any of those kind of like kind of classic 80s, uh, you know, m- movies that ended up being super sequeled and kind of giving us all of these legendary characters. But I think the original Friday the 13th is, is, is a really well done and very unique movie um, in that era of horror movies.
1: Now, here, here's something that's interesting. Um, here's a movie. So the day before we recorded this, Rolling Stone released their 101 Greatest Horror Movies list. And I'm actually not sure how many bars are on that list. Probably most of them. Um, but we did not choose their number one. We have not even mentioned their number one yet, even though it had a sequel come out just two weeks ago. Um, That is The Exorcist. William Friedkin's The Exorcist from 1973. They named the number one greatest horror film of all time. And, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's not been one that I, like, personally enjoy. Kind of like Texas Chainsaw, where I'm like, I don't enjoy this, but I appreciate this. Um, The Exorcist, I... I like just fine but as a sub-genre demon possession devil possession demon possession has never been really interesting to me where you just pray away the villain you know the or the solution to getting rid of the villain is like intense prayer it has like never been interesting to me in terms of horror but we gotta say though the exorcist in 1973 was just a smash hit. I mean, right in two years before Jaws was a blockbuster. I mean, The Exorcist was kind of one of the early 1970s blockbuster movies that, I mean, and it is shocking today. Yeah. Um, truly, truly a shocking horror movie that I think is brilliantly made and directed by William Friedkin. I mean, truly, a incredibly directed and crafted movie but i think not even friedkin's best movie personally uh, sorcerer is probably my my favorite Friedkin. um but and now if we're gonna say scariest movie of all time i think the exorcist is in that conversation as being now i'm not someone who's actually scared of horror movies i just really enjoy them but the exorcist i, I could say would probably be in competition for scariest horror movie um but i I could still probably put texas chainsaw right up there with it which is on our list either for, for reasons we discussed but rob since rolling stone called the exorcist the number one greatest horror movie of all time uh and none, we haven't even mentioned it we never even talked our way around this movie in this two-hour discussion or whatever uh what were your thoughts on the exorcist
0: Um, I'm, I'm kind of with you. And I, and I think this again goes back to the idea of, you know, the household I grew up in the idea of horror movies and that being something that was off limits was always rooted in like how demonic they were. So I think by the time I finally saw the exorcists, I, I, I wasn't prepared for it to be as shocking as it actually is. Um, and so again, it's, it's a movie that's not, I I don't find it to be incredibly scary. It's just so over the top. Like I, I, again, it's one of those things I can recognize, like, man, like William Friedkin, great director, you know, I can look back and be like, man, that beautiful cinematography, the way some of those, you know, shots are lined up, but man, like it's, it's just not, it's not that interesting of a movie to me. Um, and you were talking about like, it may be belonging in the list of the scariest movies of all time. And so here's the thing I've actually been thinking about. Like there's lots of movies that are scary in the moment. There's lots of movies that are scary when you're watching them in the theater. But once you're out of the theater, once you're out of that darkened place where suspension of disbelief goes away, how many movies really scare people and really like change their approach to their lives. And that's where I will say, I think the other horror movie you just mentioned that we didn't talk about jaws might be the scariest movie of all time. If for no other reason that especially, you know, you and I who grew up in beach communities, like jaws changed the way I would go into the ocean for a long time afterwards. Like it wasn't just a movie that like you saw it and you're like, Oh man, that was scary. But now we're out of the theater and I'm not, you know, now I'm not watching it on TV anymore. I'm not scared anymore. Like there are still moments, you know, if I'm out on a surfboard where it's like, Oh man, Jaws. Like, So I I think Jaws might actually be like, in terms of scaring you enough to change your life or change what you think about when you, when you go somewhere, Jaws might be one of the scariest movies of all time.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. I mean, Jaws made kids afraid to go into swimming pools. You know, um, you know. Of course, there are also negative consequences to that. You know, it changed the way people viewed sharks. You know, so you know, sharks were tragically still you know being um, hunted and you know killed and you know by people out at sea who just view these things as just monsters which is you know a tragic consequence of that movie um but yeah i mean it's weird because you know i think of jaws and jaws is one of my favorite movies but it's it feels more action adventure than than pure horror you know because it's such a fun movie it's kind of a hangout movie it's kind of a action adventure movie it's kind of a kind of a buddy movie kind of a comedy movie but there's this big fish terrorizing people also with, with real scares and real horror moments but you know it's just um making this list i will try to think of things that are purely horror movies that's one reason i don't have death proof on my list which death proof is one of my favorite movies but the first half is a straight-up horror movie, but the second half is much more of just a straight-up '70s car movie. So I was like, it doesn't really fit what I'm trying to do for this list. So I can't include Death Proof. I could have included From Dusk Till Dawn, though.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I was just thinking the same. I was just thinking Dusk Till Dawn.
1: That's, but that's also that's also kind of action, adventure, crime movie, but. But it is it is more horror, but with just the, a subversion of a genre subversion that makes it more purely horror than the other movies I think that we've mentioned. I'm contrad, maybe I'm contradicting myself, but I don't care. But
0: I can we at least say this in Dusk Till Dawn, the most unbelievable part of Dusk Till Dawn, the only thing that I'm not able to suspend disbelief on watching that movie is the idea that Quentin Tarantino and George Clooney are brothers.
1: Isn't that wild? <laughs> um, isn't that wild? Yeah, but I think yeah, I think that movie's so much fun yeah. and a real real great time. But yeah,
0: Selma Hayek is fantastic
1: in it. Yeah, I mean she didn't have to do much, but look incredible and before they put a bunch of monster makeup on her or a double. Um, yeah, but uh, Julia Lewis is incredible in it. Um, a few years coming off of Cape Fear and Natural Born Killers, uh, which is terrible. But, um, th- but thinking about The Exorcist, though, in terms of the way people think, going back to that conversation, you know, a lot of what people think about the devil or possessions comes from, you know, we know this. A lot of, a lot of what people think about hell in general comes from pop culture. A lot of, the of people think about, you know, um, demons and possession comes from things like The Exorcist, you know. And um if you know they' you know the the upside down crosses or the puking or stabbing herself with the, the crucifix, but even before all that stuff gets really turned up, just her going downstairs and peeing on the floor is very disturbing, you know just because it's like oh this is a normal scenario or a normal child doing a normal thing but in a context that is, like really not where that's supposed to happen create something that is actually really terrifying, you know? And so that happens like act one, act two, which I think is great. But, you know, people think that if there's a demon, they can just say the power of Christ compels you and problem solved. And that comes from that movie, you know, and there are people throwing up and passing out in the theater when that movie came out, you know, and that's, that's huge. Um, it's one that um <laughs> my my wife can't really watch. That's one that she's that's kind of one where she has to like draw the line. Like can't watch Exorcist. She's yeah. she's like she's one and done on the Exorcist. Now it, it wasn't my twenty five to choose from today. So if we had if we had done a few more rounds of this, I would have gotten to it. Um, but yeah, we I mean well, we, we, we had something we gotta say
0: no i mean it's just that thing of like if so if, if we were doing best of all time and we did 25 i'm sure i would eventually get to it if we're doing favorite i could probably name 50 horror movies that i like more
1: yeah if we're, if we're doing best it's top 10 um and if we're doing favorite it's in my, my top 25 that's why i'm out with the exorcist yeah
0: All right. Well, listener, uh, this was our kind of first test balloon of what it might be like to do a podcast, not about music, but about movies. And uh, we're going to be back uh, in December uh, to talk about movies again when we do best Christmas movies, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, but we'll be back next week or in two weeks rather with a bonus episode back on music as we do Dylan's next 28. We talked about Dylan's great 28 last off season, and now we're going to do Dylan's next 28. It's going to be a great episode. Don't miss it, but thanks for sticking around for this one.
1: Yeah. And as usual, you know, um, like follow, subscribe, uh, to the podcast, so whenever we drop new episodes in our off season, which is going to be you know a little infrequent, um, they'll be you know ready uploaded, ready to upload on whatever device you have. And also, uh, if you feel so inclined, leave a five star review, or uh, you can do one better; than you can write a review because that helps other people find the show. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram or on uh, the app formerly known as Twitter.
0: All right, listeners, we'll see you in two
1: weeks.